evening everyone. Thank you for coming. Intimate group. What will be the discussion tonight? Yes, Garmut has a question. One of the most interesting things I think is looking at scripture in terms of it being headlines or a table of contents because we grew up seeing the scripture in a particular way. Remember you um, had mentioned that Bhagavatam Saraswati had written something I think it was the Sanyas names, and uh, some people had an objection to that, and Shara Maharaj had said, well, I think actually that is what Scripture is. So, you said different things in Scriptures that I think are very important. Uh, you want me to talk a little bit about that, maybe? Uh-huh. That's an interesting topic. Probably introduced us, in a way, to the idea of Scripture, although many of us came from a Christian background, and there was Scripture. It certainly wasn't something I was... I never read the Bible. I was a Catholic boy in Catholic high school, and I never read the Bible. I don't know why, but anyway, he uh, very much emphasized the idea of Scripture, and he gave the analogy of law books. He would say that if you want to make a case in the court, then you have to know the law books. You have to cite the law. You, you can't say, well, Your Honor, I think and I really feel and it would please me very much, and my client as well, if you would find him not guilty. Whether you have to cite because the law says this at this time, therefore I think that based on the law, he should be found not guilty. So he used to give that kind of analogy. And as I mentioned, it was the way it came to us, it gave stability. After all, the topic is rather elusive God, the absolute. And it gave the topic, uh, it gave us kind of a handle how to get a handle on some footing there, so to speak. And it is also, in a way. Scripture is kind of an institutionalizing, in a soft sense, the ultimate reality, Godhead. For example, Chaitanya Dev was, I like to say sometimes, like a waterfall of ecstasy, ecstatic love. I mean, he was falling and getting up, and just like Bhagavatam says, what does Bhagavatam say? It gives us a blessing in its Ashurvad Shlok, when in beautiful poetry, Vyas writes, Nigumakalpataro galitam phalam sukumukadam tadrabhasam bhitam pibata bhagavatam rasam malayam muhuraho rasikabhuvi bhavuka. Basically, he's saying, I give you a blessing, drink this, and go mad. He's basically saying, opening the liquor house of <laughs> elixir, of intoxicating elixir of Harikata to you, and I'll give you a blessing. Drink it, pass out, and it says literally, and if you pass out, get up and drink it again. galitam falam. Vedas are desire tree of knowledge. In other words, all action requires knowledge. So from this tree you can get all kinds of knowledge and do all kinds of things. And ultimately this is the fruit of the tree, the ripened fruit of the tree, the liquid fruit of the tree. Nigamakalpatara galitam falam. Galitam means ripened and it means fallen. That's an interesting point because the ripened fruits, we may not find them in the tree. We find them fallen at the base of the tree. So sometimes it's said, it's questioned. If Vaishnavism is Vedic, people have that kind of question. Is that some kind of newer thing? Or even 
ancient traditions. Ours is a newer tradition. Mahaprabhu started his own sampradaya in the language of Jiva Goswami and his um, Sambadini, the founder of his own sampradaya. Of course, Thakur Bhakti Binod was insistent upon linking it to Madhva on the basis of the statement that it's said to be of the Padma Purana that there are four Vaishnava sampradayas. Mahaprabhu's would be obviously a fifth. So he connected it with Madhva Sampradaya, but in, in, in only in a, in a formal sense because there's so much new light in there and, and development of thought and so forth, different emphasis and, and so on, different siksha, really, or the development of the insights of Madhva. At any rate, the traditions prior to that, like Madhva's tradition or the Ramanuja tradition, also people question scholars and whatnot. Vaishnavism is, is really Vedic. What is the Vedic period? And did it develop later on? And, and so on and so forth. And, uh, and so, and almost the Bhagavatam is telling us don't even bother to look at the tree, but it's at the foot of the tree. It's fallen off the tree. It also means that this, like Uddhava said, Uddhava was sent to Vrindavan. It's very instructive to us that Bhagavatam in explaining us how Uddhava was given a message to deliver to the inhabitants of Vrindavan. Because the point being, Uddhava was a tattvavit, shastravit. How knowledgeable was he in the shastra, Veda? Well, he was Krishna's advisor, close friend and advisor of Krishna in Dwarka. He had to be very learned fellow most learned fellow in all of Dwarka. He was sent to Vrindavan to, ostensibly to bring a message to the gopis. And if you look at the message, it's, it's a message of, it appears to be a message of Gyan Yoga, saying to them, don't be worried. There's no reason that, no, to be, I think we're separated at any time. God is all-pervasive, <laughs> this kind of thing. <laughs> they had no ear for that. And Uddhava, bringing this profound message of Vedanta, Gyan, seeing the measure of their bhakti, he became himself mad and he wandered around, how they reacted to the message. He saw he wandered around for a couple of months singing different songs, a couple of verses cited in Bhagavatam. Shutibhyabhinbhagyam, he said. This place is beyond the Veda. That's like Shirupa said in his Namastakam, that this Upanishads which is the real heart of the Veda, the conclusion of the Veda, Uttar Mimamsa, are like so many jewels. And those jewels are all shining light, and it's all full of sounds. He compared the sounds, sounds of light, like jewels. And they're all shedding light on one sound of two syllables, Krishna. They're all pointing in that direction. From this one sound, everything can come. All comprehensive knowledge. The knowledge, like I like to say, that is inherent in love. Essential knowledge. In love, there's a kind of a knowledge that's essential. That means there's nothing extra collected there. In love, you know what to do. We're fond of collecting knowledge, and so much of it is meaningless and useless and a burden, really. And by collecting it, you think you've gone somewhere, but... Not, but in love there's essential knowledge. Gita says what about, what's the highest knowledge? In Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, Rajavidyam is going to speak about it in the ninth chapter. What is that highest knowledge? 
he tells us throughout and emphatically at the end, Mamana Baba Madbhatto, Madhyaji Mamanaskuru, become my devotee. This is the king of knowledge. Love me, he said. As I said before, if you love someone, then they'll tell you all the secrets. Nothing will remain to be known. So, this love of Krishna and Rajalok, Uddhava could see. And Uddhava was a learned person, so for a learned person to make these kind of statements has more significance to us. He knew the Veda, and he said, this is beyond the Veda. Veda is like pointing in the direction of this. It's beyond that. It's off the tree, so to speak. It's ripe, the ripened fruit of the tree, and it's fallen off the tree, and it's been made more accessible. If you study Bhagavatam, you have to come to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Bhagavatam takes us deep within Krishna Lila, as far as you can go. In the middle of the Rasa dance, Krishna disappears, the gopis pursue him, they retreat with Radhika after she's found, this is Sarat Purnim Rasa, and to the bank of the Jamuna they perform Kirtan. And Krishna reappears, and what does he say? He makes a testimony. I made the statement, in Gita. As you approach me, I will reciprocate accordingly. The way in which you approach me, though, I have to say, I cannot reciprocate. What you have in the method of your approach, the love that you have is greater than anything I have ever experienced. But I cannot repay you. I, in fact, I have become your, your debtor. Krishna has become indebted to them. Of course, Krishna is Krishna. He's a very crafty fellow. And so at the same time, he's thinking, but I've got to, I don't have that, but I want it. I've got to get that. I've got to taste it. Some of this is the birth of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, of course. As far in as we go into Krishna Lila, that's, that's the height of the whole Bhagavatam. Everything building up to that and everything after that is an afterthought reflecting back on this idea. Idea being what? That love of Krishna and the love of Radha in particular, this is the be-all and end-all of the culmination of all spiritual experience. This is a unique idea in the religious world of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. That as I like to say, everybody, all religions are teaching that God is the most worshipable object. And we are teaching what the worshipable object of God is. That's a unique idea. That is Radha's love. It's, uh, people ask sometimes, well, where does God come from? Or if Krishna is the source of everything, where does Krishna come from? We're the only ones who have the answer. From Radha. <laughs> because her love, this is the Chinta Beda Ved, as Krishna Kabiraj Goswami has explained. Her love corresponds with him. He appears, the Absolute makes an appearance in that form in reciprocation with the heart of Radha. Swayam Bhagavan Krishna is Krishna standing next to Radha. That is the full face of the Absolute. So he corresponds with her love. So then you ask, where does she come from? She comes from him. <laughs> he comes from her, she comes from him. <laughs> it's not a problem. 
people ask, well, where's the confirmation for Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is, is God and so forth? And you give these verses and you know, they kind of say so if you have that Gaudiya Sangskar. You can read them like that, but other sampradayas will read them differently, and they don't necessarily see that as evidence. And of course, there's a nice verse in Bhagavatam that Sanatan Goswami, the first commentator on the Bhagavatam in our sampradaya, made it very clearly. This is speaking about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, but others still sampradayas interpret that differently. Krishna varnam tisa Krishna sango pangasta parshanam even the great Sridhar Swami, whom Mahaprabhu deferred to and had such regard for, and with regard to his commentary in Bhagavatam, translated it differently. So, my point being, all that aside, the spiritual logic of Krishna Lila, the feeling of Krishna Lila that we're talking about, Radha's love for Krishna. If you understand that, you understand there must be Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Look for him somewhere. Krishna has to be somewhere trying to taste that. That's what he is. He's a taster of love. He's a connoisseur of love. So we know that he saw a love that he had no experience of. And so I like to say he had an existential crisis at this time. I'm the king of love. Here's the kind of love I've never tasted. Am I who I thought I was? And of course he regroups and says, yes, I am, and I'm going to taste that somehow, and I'm going to get that. If you know, understand Krishna, this is the whole point. Krishna, Chaitanya, Mahaprabhu, one. If you really understand Krishna, then you understand. There must be a Chaitanya. I mean, you might not know the name, but there must be some form in which he's pursuing that and has become successful. So Goswamis, they could understand that. They saw Chaitanya, Mahaprabhu, they could understand. This is what's going on. Is it in the Veda? Vrindavan itself is really beyond it. Bhagavad is, of course, speaking about it, but even there, it said, Vyasu Veti Naveti Va. Vyasu may know the meaning, he may not know the meaning. But with the appearance of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the real meaning of Bhagavatam has come out through these, his followers, the Goswamis. And what were they doing in their writings then, based on Bhagavatam, pasting? drinking the fruit. Mahaprabhu drank the fruit of the Bhagavatam. Like that Ashirvad Shloka says, drink this fruit of the Bhagavatam and become intoxicated by this and if you pass out, get up, drink it again. Mahaprabhu did this and he, that's what he had. We see that. He, he fell, he got up, he swooned. He, he was, like I say, a, practically a veritable waterfall of ecstasy. Now, just like it's hard to approach a waterfall, you can look at it from a distance, but you can't get too, I mean a big waterfall, like Niagara Falls, you can't get too close, you have to stand back. And his ecstasy was not a small manifestation of ecstasy. This is Mahabhav. This is Krishna trying to taste Mahabhav and he's having a problem. Therefore all those contortions of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, it is said that that frame of Braj, cannot be be, this Adhika Dehi is only suitable to hold up to Prem. But beyond that, Sneha, Man, Pranay, Rag, Anurag, Mahabhav, which are the developments of Prem in the Braj Leela, that the devotee will develop upon taking birth in that Leela. Mahaprabhu is trying to experience them in his form, up to Mahabhav. And so ecstasy in a big way, not a tear or some trembling or just absolute 
madness, so it caused the devotees to stand back a little bit. How can you approach such a thing like a great waterfall? It was not a trickle. So what the Goswamis did is they took that waterfall of love, so to speak, and they institutionalized it by turning it into a, a lake of their literature that made it approachable, that you could drink from it, you could bathe in it. So the scripture is a kind of an institutionalizing in a soft way, Godhead, the Absolute. And by that, it makes itself available. And while it does, and thus gives us a way to get a handle on that thing, on ultimate reality, so to speak, which is comforting. You want to approach the highest ideal, and uh, it's out of reach. Words go there and return, mind goes there and returns, and so on and so forth. So, scripture is, in general, and the Goswami Granthas and so forth, the Bhakti Shastras that they've compiled, this is a kind of an institutionalizing of the ecstasy of Mahaprabhu, which is taking us to the very heart of Krishna Lila and all the Vedic edifice, the tree of Vedic knowledge. So when we as young people, as you were asking, came in touch with that, it was rather concerning rather than disconcerting. It was comforting. We've got something to get a handle on it. It's like this. It's not like that. And so in the beginning it appears as such, but over time, the fact of the matter is it's beyond mind, beyond words. If you go to the land of faith and return from there to speak about it, and now you're limited by logic and by words, how much can you say? How, how adequately can you explain your experience, which is itself beyond words, beyond language? There's a limitation. So when, as we start to understand, we realize, well, as comforting as it was to know everything's in the book, we come to find, well, it's kind of everything's in the book, but actually even the book is limited in terms of its capacity to speak about, describe the nature of our ideal. And the book says that itself. The book instructs us along those lines. So when we start to read those kind of verses, then we, oh, then again it becomes a little bit uh, disconcerting. We had a handle on it, we thought it was like this, but was black and white's not this, it is like that, and so forth. And, and when we fall, that's good to a point, but if we fall into that in an inordinate way, then what is the result? Then you think that the absolute can be contained within language and logic and reasoning. But if you explain the scriptures to others, you find that there is a logic to the scripture, Bhakti Shastra and so forth, and that it appeals to whom? It appeals to devotees, people who have gotten bhakti sukriti. Why do we accept the logic of the Gaudiyas in terms of their understanding of the scripture? Not for a logical reason. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? We're predisposed in our psychology to accept the logic of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. What predisposes us to that? Is it reasoning? No, it's not. Sukriti is not reasoning. So that's what disposes us towards that. It would speak of being reasonable, it can be unknowingly acquired. Unknowingly, one serves the devotee, the Lord, the deity. 
unknowingly. And psychology develops a sangskar for bhakti. And so then, at a certain point in that unfolding, agyatasakriti, gyatasakriti, shraddha comes, and then the logic just makes perfect sense to us. But why doesn't it make sense to everybody else? Is it that I'm reasonable and they're not? Maybe to some extent, in some instances, but really it's the question of sukriti, kripa, mercy. And also, we find that there is considerable logic to the contrary. I'm telling you, as well as you can reason about consciousness being the matter coming from consciousness, people can reason about matter consciousness coming from matter. I mean, it won't appeal to you, necessarily, but they can make as good of an argument. Buddhists also make a good argument for consciousness being momentary. Very sophisticated argument. In modern science, very, very sophisticated arguments. We like the logic, but we're predisposed towards it, because we are involved in bhakti from a time since we cannot trace out some sukriti we acquired, and it's been built upon, and so on and so forth. So, at some point, in taking advantage of the scripture and getting a handle, like you say, kind of on the, the nature of the Absolute from the bhakti perspective and, and so forth through scripture, when it comes to realize that, yeah, it's a law book, but as I said earlier, if you play the analogy of the law books out, they're pretty dynamic. I mean, law books serve to help us determine what the law should be in any given circumstance. So circumstances change, time changes, place changes, and so forth. And so like that, scripture has to be brought to life, kept alive, so to speak. And what keeps it alive are the devotees, living devotees. Pujapashiramash, for example, used to say that the Shastra, scripture, is a uh, passive agent of divinity. And the Sadhu is an active agent of divinity. So you can read the book, but it can't ask you, so now do you understand that paragraph you just read? But the sadhu can ask you, did you understand? You say yes. And he said, well, let me hear. He can go after you and make sure that you've understood and correct you if you've misunderstood and so forth. So in our particular lineage coming from Bhaktivinotakura, this is a strong emphasis that we put more emphasis on the sadhu over the scripture. Now, this can be a problem, too, because anybody can say, well, I'm a sadhu, and say whatever, and it's not in the scripture, and that's a problem, because the scripture is also there, in another sense, to protect us. There are parameters in which Gaudiya Vaishnavism fits, and you have to stay within them. And so people who have no books can say anything and change their point, and you can't go back and say, well, you said this over here, and now you're saying that over there. And, but if you come in a lineage where there's texts and so forth, then that's diminished to a large extent. And the idea that it's all there in the books of Vyas, the, the Veda, and so everything you say should be supported by that and so forth. That's true. But how the devotees support all that? They make the scripture say what they want it to say <laughs> based on their taste, their realization. That's what the Goswamis have done with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. They went through the academic, so to speak, exercise of demonstrating that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was spoken of in the scripture. Not everyone will accept their interpretations, necessarily. But they went through the exercise. They found verses. They said, this talks about it, and this talks about it. Of course, really, in one sense, the onus is on others. 
If Chaitanya Mahaprabhu doesn't fit in the scripture, then who wants the scripture? We have to throw it out. He obviously embodies the ideal, so he must be in here somewhere. That's the way to approach it. He must be, and have to find a way. Based on the richi, the taste, the bhava, they found the way, and the verses spoke to them in that way. So these sadhus, they bring the whole thing to life. The way of staying inside the scripture and giving support to what they say from the scripture, but that will make, in the way they do that, it becomes apparent that the body of revelation is alive, it's dynamic. The verse can be taken in different ways at different times. And so the sadhu is, in a sense, more important than the scripture. And in one sense, it comes through the sadhu, and in another sense, then the subsequent sadhus will explain it in ways and draw from it things that we could not draw from that. So therefore, two bhagavatams. It's mentioned, nastaprayeshu abhadreshu nityam bhagavatasevaya bhagavatutama shloki bhakti bhavati nashtiki in Bhagavatam itself. Study Bhagavatam and the inauspicious things will go away and you'll become fixed in Bhakti. Bhagavatam is commentary on Vedanta Sutra. Vedanta Sutra is the Nyaya Shastra, the logic of the scriptures, how they all fit together in a cohesive way because they look at a first glance like it's a jungle of sounds talking about many different things in many different directions. In the sutras, Vyasa sought to bring some concordance to the whole thing. So how it's all saying the same thing from so many different angles, directly and indirectly, and vayadi taratasa, and so on. Now, Bhagavatam, as Guru Purana states, is a natural commentary on the uh, sutras. Gayatri Bantra too, Gayatri Vasya Rupa, so, so many things it is. But as a commentary on the sutras, then, you see, it, it must have some logic to it, a way of making sense out of everything in the scripture and bringing it to one central point. So if you study Bhagavatam, it says, regularly, then you become fixed in bhakti. Now, Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami, what did he say? Glorifying Gaur and Nityananda, who he described poetically like this rising of the sun and the moon at the same time, Bandei Sri Krishna Chaitanya, Nityananda Sahodito Gododai Pushpabanto Chitro Sando Tamonudo Chitro Sando Sando Tamonudo It's Tamonudo. It dissipates the darkness. It sheds light such that the, all the darkness, Kaitava, desire for Dharma, Artha, Kama, Moksha, it's extinguished, it's dispelled. And Tamonudo and Sando. Some domain, and it gives. It takes away that, and it gives praying. And then he's explaining that first. He says, how do they do that, Gauranityananda? He says, they bring us in touch with two Bhagavatas. Krishnadas says, Adi Lila, Chaitanya Charitam. He says, the book, the great Granta, book, Srimad Bhagavatam, and the person who has feeling for Bhagavatam, living the Bhagavatam the devotee, that kind of high devotee. They bring us in touch with these two, and in touch with these two, we can get that prema that they've explained. So both things. And if we have the association with the sadhu, then that scripture can come to light. And so many nuances of meaning are there in a book that, oh, I read that book. And then you hit hear them and you think, oh, you never heard that book before. I know that verse. No, you don't know the verse. There's so much there to be found. 
So that company is so um, important, the sadhu. They bring it to life. And if we don't have that company, and it means commentaries on commentaries on commentaries, just like you might think, well, let us take Jiva Goswami's commentary on uh, Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu or something. So there it is. Let's just have the commentary of Jiva Goswami. What well, could be better? Well, I'm here to tell you today there could be something better. Something better than Jiva Goswami's commentary? Well, what do you mean? Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur's came later? Pick, beg them both. There's something better than that. What could be better than that? There's the whole idea of Guru Parampara. An explanation of those commentaries that will enable you to draw from them everything that they're saying. Because if I write a commentary, I'm going to think, well, she's here, and she's here, and he's here, and they think like this. And this is I, I'm trying to think, this is what the questions they would ask, this is what doubts they might have, and I'm trying to answer them all. In other words, you write according to the time and circumstance, and you accept that people have a certain level of knowledge and understanding. And so, when you read that at a different time and circumstance, you may find oh, that the audience doesn't have that understanding. That's not already understood. So what he wrote there, just in brief, because everybody would understand it, hundreds of years later, people won't understand it. So you need someone to bring that to light at that time. So again, the importance of the sadhu. As I say, he's not making it up as he goes along, but finding what so much that's there that we wouldn't know otherwise. So without that, then we can get stuck in the idea that everything's in the book and all we are getting from it, from the book, is our limited understanding of what the book says. After all, reading the book is a whole exercise in itself. You have to have a certain temperament to read it and get anything from it. And where you'll get that? In good association, the mood will come. It will enable you in that mood to read scripture and draw something from that. Without that good association, we're going to gravitate towards our conditioning. After all, how you got in a position to be interested in this, some curiosity, perhaps, some self-seeking and sense of urgency and so forth, no doubt. And then it was met then with an answer from the absolute sadhu came to give you, to meet that. But that ongoing association is necessary to keep you in kind of a fertile position. Like when Prabhupada was here, I like to say, he had us in such a dynamic space. Yeah, we did everything the same way every day in each temple, and there was a formal formula, so to speak, but the fact of the matter is, we were ready to stand up, sit down, stand on our head, turn left, turn right, jump up, jump on one foot, whatever he would have said. If he would have said, actually, we don't need the Bhagavatam anymore. Burn all the books. We just started a bonfire. So, point being, he had us in a very dynamic space. And then, of course, he had many things for us to do and schedule and what lifestyle and so forth and so on. But now, our tendency would be to gravitate towards the, 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 all the lifestyle and the rules and, and so forth. And you could do that and not be in a dynamic space, right? You could be in a space not ready to think about why that rule is given, when, and what for, and how it may not be relevant now or pertinent now, and, and that's how those kind of rules and guidelines work. They're, they have a purpose to them. And we're told by Rupa Goswami, without knowing the purpose and following that, that becomes a problem. But vinashati, vinash, he says, they will destroy bhakti. 
let me take you down. So, to be on the edge of your seat is what we, that's what we need to be, so to speak. And that's what good company um, helps us to do. Challenges sadhu, he or she will challenge our understanding. Speak in such a way purposely to make you doubt and question. What? I never heard it like that. What is he saying? Then you pay attention. Otherwise, I heard that, I heard that, I heard that. Waiting for the talk to end. And I got something to do. And I went to the Bhagavatam class. I did that. You're supposed to go every day, right? Nityam Bhagavatasya. I did it. What kind of attendance to the Bhagavatam is that? Pariksit is the example of the hearer. How well did he listen? Well enough to be able to ignore the need to eat and sleep and drink for seven days and seven nights. That's hearing the Bhagavatam. He had a very entertaining speaker <laughs> in the form of Sukadeva, and he had a, a keen interest. It's the personification of that inquiring spirit. And he had cause as well, so to speak, seven days to live. But we already talked about that. We only have seven days also. Either Monday, Tuesday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday. That's it. We'll die. We have seven days to live, and we should spend it hearing the Bhagavatam. To hear in good association. And, and we talked a little bit yesterday also about speaker. Speaker has to be like Sukadeva, Karunayaha Paranaguya, with nothing to gain by speaking Bhagavat or Harikata. With nothing to gain. He doesn't have to pay the temple bills or something like that. It could be that bad. <laughs> then there'll be a tendency to emphasize it in a particular way, get those men out there on collecting and rather than really explaining the Bhagavatam, what's in the book. And so what if they don't go out today? And you got lost in that verse for hours on end. This is the wealth. When that wealth comes, then what other necessity is there? What's the purpose of an institution anyway? Book is a soft form of institution. Bhaktisiddhanta Sarsi Thakur started the hard form of institution. Now Guru Marsh carried that out also in the form of Iskand, Godiamath and Iskand. But this was started by Bhaktisiddhanta Sarsi Thakur under the inspiration of Bhaktivinoda Thakur. But what did he say also? You ever read the critique of Bhaktisiddhanta Sarsi Thakur of institutions? He said that was the kind of man he was. He was ready to critique not only his own tradition, Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Just like I mentioned the other day that he at one time made theistic dioramas to explain different points of the philosophy. We talked about the one, the man who was just making a living out of speaking the Bhagavatam. He did another one, many of them, but another one. He made a diorama of a Brahmin holding a shaligram, you know, the stone shaligram, Vishnu, Narayan. In one hand, on the other hand, he had a nut, like a what nuts do they have? They have cashews. Anyway, you know, nutcracker. He was using the stone as a nutcracker. He's all dressed up as a Brahmin and so forth. And the Brahmins just flipped out. They took him to court over it. You can do that in India. You could in those times. The Brahmins have the charge of religious duties and so forth. And he's saying these people are... In other words, he's saying, you're just using this Narayan simply for the purpose of feeding yourself. That's all. That's not the purpose. That's not how we really interact with Narayan. It's bogus. You're just using God to feed your belly. So they took him to court, and it was a huge debate and so forth. And, and in the end, their final point was, the smart as well, 
Okay, we understand your point. Yeah, fine, fine. So, some people do that, right? But your Gaudiya people also do that, some of them. What did he say? He said, he told the judge, all right, we'll put Gaudiya Tilak on them, on the diorama. No problem. So, he was ready to critique his own tradition, which he did. He wasn't just critiquing the Asura Varnashram, the distortion of Daiba Varnashram that was rampant and is symptomatic of Kali Yuga, the corruption of the Brahminical class and so forth. This is right there in Bhagavad. But also he's ready to critique his own tradition, Gaudi tradition, in a big way. And he's caused so many waves. And not only that, I'm taking it a step further. He's ready to critique his own institution, Gaudiamat, his own institution. He formed this big institution and then he critiqued it and did a whole article on the downfall of what can happen forming a, an institution. While it seeks to extend the truth to us, it can get in the way. doesn't mean we shouldn't form one because it does, but there are dangers. There are more dangers in that hard form of institution of that happening than there are in the soft form of institutionalizing in the form of literature. It's harder to corrupt the literature than it is to corrupt an organization. But that can be corrupted too. So we critique the whole concept of that. This is the kind of person that's our leader. We should be like that. We should invite criticism for that matter. That'll make us strong. Not that whoever criticizes, we'll call them this demon, that, exile them. There may be idle criticism, but there's so much constructive criticism. And it may be sometimes strong. So sadhu is for that. Sadhu means sometimes means like sharp, like a knife. He cuts our attachments. It's another way of understanding the word sadhu. So he comes to challenge us and challenge our understanding and make us rethink and so forth. And she speaks in a strong way to unsettle us. Because even in the midst of the books and the tradition and trappings and so forth, we'll tend to gravitate towards our conditioning. And then we'll read a book and draw from it that which supports our particular psychology and material way of looking at things that will stand out. Oh, this is confirming something that I believe, this part. And then that'll be my emphasis. Or I may make a whole religion out of that, even. Instead of taking a thing comprehensively and see what it's really saying to us and how it's supposed to take us beyond our what we're predisposed towards in terms of our material sanskar. Like a chauvinist can read Bhagavatam and draw things from it that think you think, yeah, yeah, I like this part, you know, and just confirm his chauvinism. And Bhagavatam, is, the message of Bhagavatam is just the opposite. It tells you to become a lady. <laughs> That's <laughs> the message of Bhagavatam, to become a lady, in a sense, right? to become a gopi, that you're feminine. Those things are there in Bhagavatam, but what's it really all saying, ultimately? So we need help for that, to understand that. So the importance of the sadhu, bring the book to life. And overall, then, both sadhu and shastra, these are forms of revelation. This is the way in which the Absolute seeks to speak to us about itself. And the nature of the subject is such, you can never say enough about it, so it's, it's going to be limited. You asked, can you talk a little bit about the idea that the book, the Shastra, is, is just like the outline, or the table of contents, which is what I've said before, drawing that from things I've said. So 
how is it that the books are just the outline, just the table of contents to the book of life? This is what the idea is. It's a big outreach, but it itself says, well, can, what can we say about that? Therefore, it says what? Go there, go there, and know. Don't just think about Krishna consciousness. You have to be Krishna conscious. Bhagavatam gives a bit strong bashing to the intellect. The book compels us to act in such a way that we can know beyond what we could know by thinking, beyond what the limitations of the theoretical presentation of the tradition. I mean, I think that our acharyas do a pretty good job, but the fact of the matter is Krishna consciousness is very different than what you think it is. And you should be prepared for that. It's similar, but it's not the same. Because naturally you're looking at it through your conditioning, and that's unavoidable. As you grow, you see, well, it's different than I thought. It's like this. This is what bhakti is. So that's what bhakti is. What leela is. You have a very, we, have a, we have a very static idea of, of leela also. It's okay. Just begin with that. But it's not static. It works within parameters that we call rasatattva, but it's vast. So, a little openness on our part, a lot of openness is required. And we can feel safe to be open in good company, to be open-minded in good company. So, the importance of Shastra. Basic idea is about Shastra, about Sadhu, is that comprehensive knowing will not come by anything other than a comprehensive means. Perfect knowing will not come without a perfect means. And so what is the perfect means for the imperfect to practice an exercise such that it can know the perfect? And the idea is, this is what you can do. You can fold your hands. You can admit your imperfection and pray. This is the perfect approach for the imperfect to approach the perfect. This is how to get perfect knowledge. This is what the scripture is saying to us. So it's saying that comprehensive knowing will come by revelation. If God wants you to know, then you can know. Otherwise not. So scripture is a major principal manifestation of that revelation. But there's more in it than meets the eye, so to speak. And therefore it said, Dharma Satatam Nihitam Guhayam. Mahaprabhu demonstrated this. This is a strong point in our Bhaktivinoda Paribar, the importance of the sadhu. He places him above the Shastra. Again, the problem with that would be, well, he's above Shastra, so whatever he says, it's not supported by Shastra, then everything goes to hell. Anybody could make up anything. That would be the objection. But Bhaktivinoda's idea is, no, the sadhu is above Shastra. And when he speaks, when she speaks, they reveal what the Shastra is pointing to, what it's saying in its furthest reach, and so forth. And it's alive in their heart, and therefore they're above, they're more important. And something can come in there that doesn't appear to be in the Shastra. But like whatever Bhakti Sarasvati Thakur did, he did go through the academic exercise of supporting it from Shastra. Not everybody accepted his support. Therefore, you have different sampradayas. People interpret the Shastra in different ways and so forth. But the main point is this, that 
Again, comprehensive knowing will come by revelation, not otherwise. How can the finite know the infinite? You know the answer. How can the finite know the infinite? Mathematically, that's impossible. But, we're looking at it, and understandably, from the point of view of the finite. If the infinite wants the finite to know, then it's possible. On our terms, it's not possible. The finite cannot know the infinite. But if the infinite wants to make itself known to the finite, it's infinite. It can do anything. From the land where impossible is not found in the dictionary, things will come. <laughs> make it possible for us to transcend the limitations of our present condition. Maya means to count. What we're doing, counting, measuring, everything, trying to bring it within our grasp. And the news is, it's beyond your grasp. You cannot bring the absolute in the fist of your intellect. But, if you learn to love Krishna, then you can capture him in that way. That way he can be captured. So, by revelation, comprehensive knowing can come. Not by other limited means. Of course, then in saying that, he shows the shortcoming of logic and the shortcoming of sense perception and so forth, but that doesn't mean to say that sense perception and, and logic are to be thrown out. We have to use our logic and we have to use our sense perception for that matter to study the scripture. It, it is reasonable. It picks up where reason leaves off. Something like that. So, that is a few words about a kind of a dynamic understanding of scripture. What else? Jivadaya? I was wondering about Lord Chaitanya and maybe it seems like he actually penned very few things. I mean, maybe ten, ten verses. There's a trust in maybe two others. Was it because, or the understanding it because he was so involved in his experience that he didn't sort of take time or have time to sort of sit back and reflect and sort of talk about his experience or was it maybe okay, what I've written is enough and well there's a couple of reasons why Chaitanya Mahaprabhu didn't write many things I was making the point I didn't finish that point that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was also in his Leela demonstrated this idea of the superiority of the sadhu over the Shastra when he came to Vrindavan and he met that Brahmana and by scriptural norms in regard to Dharma Shastra. He shouldn't have eaten lunch at that fellow's house, even though he was a Brahmin. But he saw in him a kind of love that could only have come from Madhavendra Puri, where Mahaprabhu ostensibly got his love. The seed is in Madhavendra. So he transgressed that and he said, Dharma sitatvam nihitam guhayam. Do you want to talk about scripture? The truth of the scripture is in the heart of the sadhu. Madhavendra Puri ate at his house. I will eat there also. But anyway, with regard to your point, why Mahaprabhu didn't write many things, one of the main reasons he didn't write everything is because he felt that the Bhagavatam... See, what other acharyas who formed sampradayas did, they wrote commentaries on the sutras, and that was the standard. That you would establish a sampradaya, a metaphysic... A meta narrative by 
making a commentary on the sutras and demonstrating thereby what the meaning of the shastra is and how it's to be how it's to be understood what it's really saying and so you had a charges before him Shribasya, uh, Brahmanuja, and, 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 and Madhva's commentaries and, and, and Barka and this one and that one but Mahaprabhu's idea was why should I write a commentary on the sutras when indeed the Bhagavatam is a commentary on the sutra written by the author of the sutra and so he said Bhagavatam is the perfect commentary in the sutras this way he put Bhagavatam in the center and so forth that is the scriptural hub around which everything in Gaudiya Vaishnavism revolves which is also interesting relative to your point in making that case in Satsandarva what does Jiva Goswami demonstrate? he demonstrates the relativity of Shastra it's interesting because he's demonstrating that Bhagavatam is the supreme praman, the supreme evidence, Srimad Bhagavatam. And we know what we know because it's stated in Bhagavatam. He's making a case for comprehensive knowing can only come from revelation, from scripture, from Shabda Praman, the transcendental sound coming from there. While he's establishing this as the absolute way of knowing, in the context of doing that, if you study closely, he's also showing that there's relativity in the scripture because he's saying, well, you can't get it from the Vedas, and this is why. You can't get it from the Puranas entirely because one Purana goes this way and it's tendering to the persons in modes of ignorance, and this Purana is tendering to people in modes of passion, and so forth. And amongst all the Puranas, the Sattvic Puranas, you know, they're the best. And so he's showing relativity, you understand, within the scripture in the context of establishing the scripture is absolute. You follow me? Even if it says in Vedanta Sutra, well, you know, we can't take that fully because it's in codes and it's hard to understand. And he's shedding some light on the idea that there's relativity here, that there's certain things were spoken for certain purposes and so forth. Then he comes to Bhagavatam. So anyway, Bhagavatam is the hub, the scriptural hub around which all of Gaudiya Vaishnavism moves. And all the scriptures are to be interpreted or understood in relation to the Bhagavatam. Hiva Goswami goes so far as to say, if it says this in that Purana, but it says a contradictory thing in the Bhagavatam, we reject that Purana and we accept the Bhagavatam. And he explains the logic for all that and so forth. Which again is the relativity of some of the Puranas. Shiva's two Bhagavan Swayam. It's there. You're making a big thing, Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam, but there's also, it also says Shiva two Bhagavan Swayam. Shiva Purana. And he explains why, by establishing what Bhagavatam is, where it's the very heart of the scripture, the mature revelation of Vyasa and so forth. Then he gives the reasoning why we can, all those statements, that will be made for the Shaivites, to get people predisposed and influenced by Tamagun to come on, on board, all the Bhutas and Pretas and these kind of people and so forth. <laughs> See, it's, it's a vast yeah, topic. But anyway, then he said, uh, so why should I write a commentary? So he didn't write a commentary on the sutras. He wanted to bring attention to the Bhagavatam itself. And another thing is that he didn't want to impose his intellect on the environment. He wanted to read it, to use Prabhupada's phrase, as it is. And the problem with the environment, or the nature of being, is that it appears to be one and different. 
So scholars have reasoned acharyas, it's different. It's one. It's advaita. It's dvaita. It's vishisht advaita. It's one, but qualified in this way and that and that. And all of these predecessor acharyas, in the estimation of Mahaprabhu, imposed their intellect upon the environment <coughs> to try to explain away the contradictory nature of it. And he said, no need to do that. This is what it is. It's one and it's different at the same time. That's a huge philosophical, metaphysical discussion. He read Bhagavatam. He saw Krishna's being bound, for example, by Mother Yashoda in Damodar Leela. So many ropes were put together to try to tie Krishna and they couldn't, he couldn't be tied. They were all two inches too short. But Krishna wasn't getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The more and more rope that was brought, he wasn't getting, expanding himself, getting fatter and fatter, was he? He was just the same medium size he's described in Bhagavatam. Medium size. Not infinite, not infinitesimal. Brahma describes him. Medium. There's a whole meaning to that. Anyway, so he wasn't getting bigger and bigger. And then when finally he agreed to be tied up, same rope, actually Jiva Goswami describes in Gopalakshana, from the ribbon of her hair. She took the ribbon to try to, and then to that ribbon she attached so much rope, and more rope, and more rope. And the ladies were peering over the fence into the courtyard, ladies who had complained that Krishna was coming to their house and stealing butter and yogurt, and, and that's why Nandamars got worried, Mother Yasoda's complaining, our sweets, our milk, must not be good enough for them. So we got special cows and grazed them on special grasses. From that milk she was churning on the stove and she put him down from nursing to go and tend to that milk and so all to keep him home. Ladies were complaining about him, but they liked to complain. They had the opportunity to talk about him. And so when in the courtyard then he was she was trying to tie him up and they're looking over and giving him her some rope and as the cowherds they make rope and they have nothing to do. That's what they do. The rope is very useful for cow herding. So all the rope in the whole village was tied to her ribbon and still she couldn't tie it around Krishna. He was still sitting there medium size. And then when he wanted to be tied up, when he saw the measure of her affection and endeavor, and he gave his mercy, we needed two things, endeavor on our part and mercy from Bhagavan. Then she could tie him up just with the ribbon. So when Mahabharata saw the story, he could see, a, oh, what could he see? Krishna is everywhere and in one place at the same time. He could understand the Chintaveda Veda. He's so big, he's everywhere, you can't wrap him, tie him up. But at the same time, he's appearing like, how can one who's everywhere move? Right? But he's saying, this story is showing he's everywhere, but he's also moving. So think like this. This is how he comes to the conclusion. Of course, it's articulated by Jiva Goswami. Achintya Veda Veda. And again, that's a big, big, big topic. We don't have time to go into. But on account of things like this, Mahaprabhu didn't write. That's one reason. And then, of course, what he did was he sat down for a period of time with two people. Shiva Rupa Goswami and Shiva Sanatana Goswami. At Prayag and at, in Banares. And to these people, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu gave everything. All the Shiksha. These were the leaders of his Sampradaya. Really. He gave them everything. He empowered them to explain all about bhakti, all about what he was about. And so then they orchestrated writing 
नाना शास्त्र विचार Beginning with Sanatana Goswami's work, Prihat Bhagavatamrita, and then so many others. So that work was given to them, and then they commissioned some others. These Goswamis, they are most important to us, of all the associates of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. They gave the Bhakti Shastra to us, and they exemplified the life of sadhakas. So many of Mahaprabhu's associates did not exemplify the life of sadhakas. What well, we learned from Ramananda Roy in terms of his lifestyle. He's not setting an example like that. But from Rupa Goswami, Sanatana Goswami, we learn that example. So, he placed it in their hands. While he didn't write anything, his devotees have written so many things. All to explain why he didn't write anything. <laughs> I sometimes wonder why it was turned over to someone else and figured out, well, who better to... Well, Krishna likes to see his devotees do more than him. That's why Hanuman built the bridge, not Ram. And as far as like educating, it seems like the point of writing commentaries is so that future generations of people in that time can understand the scripture and not just simply to sort of give weight or clout to some sort of sect or something like that. It's like this is our interpretation, this is why we should have our group should be Sampradaya or whatever should be respected. So I was wondering, through the Sankirtan movement and sort of giving the masses the whole social revolution is that rather than himself writing a commentary on my Bhagavatam, sort of sharing that directly with people, the idea of you know, what's in a name with the... Mahaprabhu said the most important word in the scripture is Krishna. If you know this one word, I'll make it easy for you, and everything will be known. <laughs> That's what he's saying, something like that. Yeah, can be thought like that. Mahaprabhu also was told by his guru, you cannot study Vedanta. So, he said, let's chant this mantra. So, people have a difficult time studying Vedanta and Kali Yuga. So, just chant. But really, to just chant, you need a fair amount of knowledge and understanding. Because you don't have a taste for chanting. So, you need logic and scripture and reasoning why you should be chanting and so forth. So, we do have a large body of literature. We're lucky to have that. So, anything else? Yes? Critique you mentioned of the movement, institution, and all these things. How does it relate to offense? Well, I mentioned constructive criticism. There's different types of criticism. There'd be criticism in the mode of ignorance. There'd be criticism in the mode of passion. There'd be criticism in the mode of goodness. So criticism in the mode of ignorance is like criticism for criticism's sake. Criticism in the mode of passion we engage in criticizing others and so that we can feel better about ourselves. And criticism in the mode of goodness is constructive. It's for the benefit of, the, of whomever you're criticizing. So there should be constructive criticism. But obviously there is criticism that's not worth listening to. It's not well-founded, it's not based on facts and it comes from envy. Envy means that I cannot tolerate the good qualities of another. So if someone have all good qualities, if a heart is envious, it will turn all those good qualities into bad qualities. You can't argue with those people. You say something so nice, you write something so nice, and it's just amazing how they will take objection to it. Their heart will do that. So that kind of criticism is there. That's like Prabhu said about that, the dogs will bark, but the train will go on. But constructive criticism, that's another thing. 
and by practicing people, we're actually practicing and advanced and in bhakti. We should really invite their criticism, don't you think? From my position, how do I distinguish from that? You get to know Shastra. You're obliged to know something, learn something. I mean, a lot of devotees are a little afraid. Somehow they've been spoken to in such a way that they have a lot of fear. And it might be good to a point, but it's, it can be problematic, I think, also. And then they, it's really, it is really clear to them that something's a problem, but they're intimidated by this. Psychologically have been intimidated for some time. They think, well, I don't want to be offensive. I should be humble. I don't want to be offensive. I don't want to say anything. And some institutions, to be frank with you, we take Prabhupada's institution, Amnam was a member of Prabhupada's institution when Prabhupada was here, and it's not the same what it was then. Somebody better be criticizing it constructively, and somebody better be listening, because it's not what it used to be. It's very unbecoming in comparison in many respects. I mean, leadership is at a low ebb, spiritually. In the name of not wanting to criticize, you're going to turn a blind eye to something that's like as plain as a nose on your face. When somebody's put forward as being the Sadhguru of millions of people in Eastern Europe and he ends up becoming some flaky New Age whatever, you know. I mean, there's a problem. And the solution isn't, well, we got rid of them. I mean, you created them. <laughs> you created them. You put them up there. I mean, that's the problem. Something's wrong here. Those things have to be addressed. Just to give you an example. I mean, that's a pretty blatant example. And to just freeze them away and say, just see, such a thing happened. And still, all the, so many of the devotees stayed in the mission. We're doing great. But wait, why did it happen in the first place? You created such a situation like that. And not and everybody did stay. So many people are damaged by that. What could be worse? I mean, if, if I had an institution and then I had representatives that did that to people, how would you feel? You think about it. It's your group. It's your, your organization. You started it. And then people who represented it in highest capacity tendering to such a sensitive thing, the faith, the whole basis of my standing in spirituality, and was treated like a doorstep rather than the deity that it is. How would you feel? You'd feel I'm not being represented here very well. You'd want to do something about it. You see, I'm Prabhupada's disciple. I know what Iskon should be. Well, I told a story once before. A fellow once came to me in Vrindavan, and he'd come from Mayapur where Iskon has the meetings. And so I was chatting with him, Godbrother, and I said to him, I said, so how did your meetings go? And, you know, for sake of conversation, not that they really had any you know, bearing on me, but how did the meetings go with your GBC? And he said, oh, Maharaj, says, we don't care about the GBC. That is making so many rules. I said, you see, that's the difference between you and me. I care about the GBC. I know what Prabhupada wanted it to be. I know what he wanted it to be. And I'm not happy with it the way it is. Well, with that attitude, what kind of member are you? Are you a member of the group or not? You don't care about it. Oh, because it's, uh, it's, it's so bad. Uh, then why are you a member? Either you're going to change it or get out. At least you should try to change it as much as you can until they throw you out. <laughs> Live up to your convictions. Speak up. So, I mean, a constructive criticism is necessary. And there's obvious things that need to be addressed. And you can find people in, this, in the group, in that group, for example, that do that to speak up and so forth. So align yourself with you know those who do and make a stand. Change the thing. It's your group. It's what you make it. That's what it is. You've got a part to play, all of you, who are members of any institution. The members have everything to do with it. 
make it what it is. You can't just sit there and say, well, it's like this and I can't do anything about it. No, that's not what the institution teaches, actually, any spiritual institution. I'm a troublemaker, I gotta, you know, that's true. <laughs> but sometimes you have to wake people up in the morning. You gotta wake them up. So I'm frank, I speak loudly, and I think my criticisms are constructive. And I set a good example, also. So, so there's scope for you to do that. There's not much difference between you and me, you're a sincere devotee. Use your common sense. In your heart, you have no desire to make offense, right? You don't have any desire to offend anybody, do you? That's why you ask. Anyway, the reason you ask the question is because you don't want to make offense. You want to be careful. So, that's a good beginning. That will protect you substantially, considerably. Offense is with malice, really. You don't have malice. Everyone should improve their local chapter and their whatever, their zone, their, their mission. Ask questions, demand answers respectfully. <laughs> you have to be nourished. That's the groups for nourishing. They have a, you know, the group has every right to ask you to give everything in one sense and ask no questions in one sense. If the group is giving everything to you, and if they are, you won't have any questions. You'll be fulfilled. But if the group asks you to give everything, but they're not giving everything to you, then you're not going to be fulfilled. You're running on empty here. You know. And what? I'm running on empty. I need some nourishment. Troublemaker. Get rid of that guy. He's not satisfied. It's wonderful. How can he not be satisfied? Right? Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> is it? Tell your own temperature. Yep. We can help you to go back to Godhead, but you've got to go. You really have to stand up and, and apply yourself. And, and you have to think. It's not, spiritual life is not such that we're teaching you you don't have to think. We'll do all the thinking for you, Prabhu. No, you're going to have to think about it. And I know that's disconcerting, <laughs> but you're going to have to do that. And you have to make difficult decisions, like when you joined. It was a diff maybe a difficult decision. You know, your family, maybe you want your friends and so forth. But you, did. you have to make those kind of decisions progressively throughout as it comes to bear in the course of your practice that Krishna is now over here and you can see it, you can understand that's wrong, this is right or whatever it may be and you have to go there, you have to follow it progressively. I should be doing this now, I should be doing that now. So yeah, you have to be a little courageous in spiritual life. It, it takes courage. You have to stand up for what you understand and stand up and be heard, something like that. But the tendency is to want to let the institution think for you. That's what so many religious movements are full of people like that. The group's going to think for me and I don't have to think and then you just get these kind of fanatical religious movements. There's so many of them. Some charismatic guy and going to do all the thinking for you. No, they should be telling you, you have to think. Make challenging you, make you think about the philosophy and what it means and how it applies and, and the fact that it can be applied differently in different places. It must be for that matter. But that's unfortunately a strong kind of tendency in human society. Join the military because it's all worked out. It's not the only reason people join the military, but that can be part of it. It's all worked out. They tell you what to do and there it is. 
where people can join religious movements. Maybe not with that in mind in the beginning, but it can come to that. It can deteriorate to that. They're going to think for me, and I'm afraid to think. If I think, I might make an offense. And if I ask, why you ask that question? You're speculating. Next question. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe you didn't have the answer. That's why you said that. It's also possible. That kind of thing also happens, unfortunately. This individual's thinking, how does it relate to uh, bhakti not being dependent on uh, mental or intellectual capabilities? When bhakti comes in your heart, then you think spiritually. As much as you get bhakti, then your actions, will you stop acting because you became a devotee? No. So should you stop thinking? No. How do you act when you become a devotee? Your actions are informed now by bhakti and, and the knowledge that's present in bhakti. All actions are informed by some knowledge. With the ingress of bhakti, then we call that knowledge of bhakti, that we call that sambandhagyan. Then that fosters a certain type of activity, right? And similarly, it fosters a certain kind of thinking. It's not that bhakti doesn't stop you from acting, it causes you to act in relation to bhakti. So it's not that the psychic dimension is closes down and the physical dimension remains active. No, there's a way of thinking. We call that, scripture calls that shastrayukti. Shastrayukti. This kind of reasoning and thinking. That's why it's important to be acquainted with the theory, with shastra. Then you can exercise, you're supposed to exercise shastrayukti. It means it's a kind of a creative way of thinking in relation to the scripture and drawing meaning from it, what is being said, and supporting the scriptural purport in an ongoing way with new insights and so forth. So there's a, something like the Prabhupada called mental speculation, just kind of speculating. But there's another thing is to enter into the scripture and analyze it and think about it in a dynamic way and so forth. So there's a way to think, naturally, in relation to bhakti also. And you have to do that. The teacher, the real teacher, wants you to teach. Wants you to really be all that you can be, stand up. And I mean, I want to rather be surrounded by people that know more than me than people who know less than me. <laughs> that will help me grow, right? If a student of mine says something that I haven't thought of before, nothing could give me more happiness. An insight, a point that came to them in their heart about the philosophy and. The I'll take that gem and show that. And I'll, I'll say that. I'll repeat that point of that analogy thousands of times. It'll be my favorite. Nothing will give me more happiness than to see that. Teachers not to keep people down, but to bring people up. Indeed, real teacher doesn't see that he has any students. He sees, I can learn from everybody. All these people come in and engage me, keep me busy. So, you're sincere. Everything will come to you. I'll give you my blessing. Hare Krishna.